0: Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor on the IC. I'm filling in for our editor John Heumann this week, who's sitting at home with a sore throat. So get well soon, John. Joining me in the studio, our news editor, Bradley Gerrard. Bradley, how are you doing? Yep, very good. Thank you. And we also have our banking correspondent, our new banking correspondent, Emma Powell. Yeah. How are you enjoying it, Emma?
1: Yeah, it's good so far. It's a good time to join since everything seems to be going to pot. So. <laughs>
0: yeah, if you like being busy, it's a good time to be yeah. covering the banks. And over in the studio, we have our technology correspondent, Theron Mohammed. Hi, Theron. Hello. And we also have, on the controls, Dominic Toms. How are you doing, Dom? Doing very well, thanks. Very brilliant. Okay, well, Chuck D said, how low can you go? And that's very much the question that everyone's been asking of the markets this week. Bradley, the footsie of three and a half year low. Yep yields low tell us what's going on out there does anyone know yeah i mean how
2: low can you go is a good question um i think one of the seven day stories is a, a good point to start on because there well, maybe it's more than this now but it was at the time of writing which was yesterday um about six trillion dollars of government debt that is at zero or negative yields so that kind of gives an, es- an essence to listeners of the sort of fear and risk off or risk aversion i should say that's in the, in the market at the moment which expresses itself in other ways like you say the footsie is down to three and a half year low gold is back up to 1200 per troy ounce um, ETF Securities saw $108 million in a week go into its gold ETF. So
0: Gold finally becoming uh, that safe haven asset. Yeah, exactly. Was, I
2: mean, that was a record for them and they're indicators that people are a bit worried about growth and then today as well you had the Riksbank, which is the Swedish central bank, cutting rates further into negative territory and that hasn't helped things in the markets today
0: either. So, so obviously we had the, the the ongoing commodities route and what that's done, yeah. Yeah, especially with any uh, companies that are exposed to emerging markets. But what we seem to have developed um, in the markets now is this complete uncertainty about... monetary policy globally and And, and Janet Yellen was in front of Congress again this week saying some quite concerning things about the future of global growth and as you say we've seen central banking moves in Japan in Mm. Sweden there's real concern out there.
2: Yeah exactly and it wasn't it was probably only a few months ago the consensus for US rate rises probably would have been potentially four this year in 2016 maybe three as a as a better average but now I mean I don't think anyone can see another one the prospects for inflation are looking terrible as you say central banks around the world are sort of now trying to do this one upmanship competition of surprising one another with how far into negative territory they can take their rates and then that's having um, a knock-on effect you mentioned commodities are having a terrible time but now banks might well do as well because the negative rates obviously have a terrible impact potentially on their profitability because they obviously, you know, they, they loan money out. And if rates are very low or negative, then the, the margin, I suppose, on their lending comes under pressure and people
0: are obviously scared about that. Emma, you've been reporting on this this week. Yeah. Uh, at, at the centre of this maelstrom of news, bad news around the banking sector, which is making us all think very much back to 2008, it, it has been Deutsche Bank. So what's been going on at Deutsche Why don't we start there and then broaden out the picture?
1: As you say, it's been, I mean, a terrible week for the banking sector, but Deutsche Bank were really at the centre of this. People have had kind of concerns about their recovery plan over the last couple of years, actually. But what really kind of sent people into a bit of a tailspin, market watchers, was the fact that the price of credit default swaps kind of rocketed up I think it was its highest since it's been in June 2013 so very high and obviously that's the price at which you know if, if, if the price of credit default swaps goes up it's kind of that investors or market watchers are just getting more concerned that it's not going to be able to pay its debt.
0: And in particular it's been convertible bonds cocoa bonds that have been the focus of investors' concerns. Now tell us a little bit about how these how these bonds work just in broadly.
1: Well cocoa bonds or as to give them their proper name contingent convertible bonds they count as tier one capital and actually they were introduced after the banking crisis in 2008 and the thing with cocoa bonds at the moment is basically if a bank or a company is in financial distress the idea is that that will switch straight into equity but cocoa Cocoa bonds pay a coupon. Now the concern is at the moment from banks like Deutsche Bank, also Credit Suisse, is that they actually won't be able to make the payments of these coupons. So that's a big concern. It's also worth noting that cocoa bonds are the riskiest type of debt that banks can issue.
0: You know, Some people say that's just this, these kind of assets doing their job. They're precisely supposed to be around as kind of buffers for this this type of activity. But it wasn't just Deutsche that's been kind of dragged into this, the UK banks. And there's, there's wider concerns about the banking system at the moment, right? In terms of the profitability, particularly in investment banking, yeah. the exposure to oil and gas markets. What are, you, what are you talking about there?
1: When this news about Deutsche Bank really hit earlier this week, shares in Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds, I mean, I could go on, pretty much the whole bank, UK listed banks, all fell to a 12 month low, which is not surprising, because there's kind of a perfect storm at the moment for the UK banking sector. As Bradley mentioned before, and as you mentioned, you know, you've got interest rate rises and the money they can make, lending money over the longer term, and then the interest that they pay out, the gap between that being squeezed. Obviously, a lot of banks have really cut down on their investment banking operations. So there's the question of what are they going to do in the future? How are they going to make money? You've got banks like Standard Charter, HSBC, Mm. which obviously have greater exposure to emerging markets. And obviously, um, that's that's a concern at the moment, not just for the banks, actually, but for also for asset managers that are exposed in that way. So yeah, there's just all these factors really just compounding the issue. And it isn't surprising that the share prices of these banks has just fallen through the floor basically. I mean clearly
0: you have the, all those those challenges the, the flattening yield curve and what that means the, the challenges on income that we've written about a lot for, for banks and the exposure the loans to some of these really kind of under stress sectors but interestingly we did at the end of last year have a sustainability report from the Bank of England that deemed the bank's levels of capital good enough and that actually conducted a stress test that was based on an emerging market uh, crisis and found that you know the bank's balance sheet were strong enough to handle this so it'll be interesting once the volatility dies down to look at the underlying picture for the for the uk
2: i suppose just to finish off on financials point um, an interesting bit of data from market they've looked at the outflows from financial etfs so you know sort of um, exchange traded funds that have uh, just have um, financial stocks within them and so far this quarter almost a billion dollars has been withdrawn so that just kind of just to conclude that financial point is like
0: that shows people are pretty bearish on financial yeah. stocks at the moment incredibly not much good news but in terms of that domestic picture there was actually something else in seven days around uh, the industrial production in december so what do we learn there bradley
2: Industrial production in December contracted by 1.1%, which was much greater than the 0.1% uh,
0: that had been predicted by you know, commentators and economists in the market. So not but- great for people sitting in equities. But there were these wonderful things designed a few years ago called multi-asset funds that were supposed <laughs> to uh, do well at exactly these kind of times by having a reduced equity allocation. They promised equity-like returns with less uh, volatility. Now, how have they done? You've been looking at this.
2: Yeah, I mean uh, we've we've looked at. A very- a very very small subset, but it's a related subset, so that's kind of why why it's interesting. But um, as you say, I mean, multi asset funds more generally should provide that level of comfort. But the next level up, which is kind of what we've looked at here, is the idea of a, an absolute return um, multi asset fund. So although that. That term absolute return has kind of been tweaked now by the investment association. The sector is called targeted absolute return because they obviously can't 100% guarantee they will deliver an absolute return. So the targeted absolute return sector has some interesting constituents within it. GARS, which people may know, is short for Global Absolute Return Strategies Funds run by Standard Life Investments. It's a flagship fund. It's it? a flag- It's an industry flagship fund, really. I mean, the whole strategy of the company is about £50 billion, pounds, maybe even more. The retail fund on its own is about £26 billion of that. So... It's a big beast and a lot of people have got into it. And it's done very, very well. But some challenger funds have launched. So Aviva Investors have a similar fund. Um, and the interesting thing about that is that Ewan Munro, who's the chief executive over at Aviva Investors is widely regarded as the architect of GARS. He was at Standard Life and joined Aviva back in 2014. And then also you've got Invesco Perpetual, who again have a similar fund. They hired three or four key GARS members and um, started their own version as well. And the story really we've written this week is just looking at the most recent performance of these funds. And... um, Interestingly, the challengers um, have have performed better than Gaz. So it's just an interesting trio of funds to look at because they're all trying to do the same thing. Gaz is effectively, you know, on a pedestal. It's the, it's the one to aim for. And in terms of performance in the past year at least, the other two funds have um, performed much better.
0: Well, you know, just while we're talking about asset managers, uh, Emma, you've been looking at uh, a couple of results today uh, Henderson yeah. and Ashmore. Ashmore, in particular, the emerging markets focused manager that suffered a huge amount of, kind of outflows and market underperformance as a result of this EM sell off that we've seen. What have we learned today?
1: Well, yeah, as you mentioned, Ashmore and also Henderson quite different sets of results it won't be surprising that ashmore has suffered large outflows but again it's an emerging market specialist henderson on the other hand a lot more positive record inflows yet shares for both companies down by about six percent today which is that it's, just
0: marking to market? You know, with with assets. Well, I bit? did.
1: I did ask Andrew Formicos, the chief exec at Henderson, kind of what he made of that, and he said, not surprisingly, he's uh, he wasn't too concerned, and that uh, the high beta nature of Henderson was why. The fact that the market was down, that was kind of amplified for Henderson. He's not too worried. Like I said,
0: just to explain, Henderson kind of focuses on equities. It has lots of European equities, so they should be really hit by the. Yeah, European
1: equities. Yeah, European equities. They've actually benefited with QE. The introduction of QE, Um, they say a lot of Europeans have been wanting to move out of cash and into equities um, and also some fixed income products. It's funny you mention absolute return he said that that had been very popular in the UK and they're actually expanding their um their distribution network in Australia and what was interesting he said about that was that they've had um a lot of interest in um, investing in emerging markets um mm. he said obviously you know that's not something he's seen across the board but that investors in Australia were looking to come back into the emerging markets after seeing such big falls ahead of everyone else.
0: I mean the big question is how much this current volatility or should we just say market falls are going to impact on retail investors in in, in, the, in Europe wanting to invest in European equities and that's you know obviously a bit of a worry for them in terms of outlook. Okay well let's step away from the financial sector uh, for, for now. Uh, Bradley another sector that's had a couple of bad news stories uh, this week is farm pharmaceuticals and healthcare mm. um, just to cover off astrazeneca had a uh, warned on its 2016 financial year earnings as a result of kind of digesting past acquisitions but another company that has been dealing with the past acquisition is hikma
2: yeah it's an interesting story So hikma is, um, actually it's quite a it's quite a sizable company it's a ftse 100 company market cap of about four
0: billion roughly it's the biggest far ever, ftse 100 company you've never heard of
2: yeah it? it pretty much is I, I, I thought it was a bit smaller than it was but No, it is a a sizable business.
0: And obviously, as you say, part
2: of the whole pharmaceutical healthcare sector that a lot of our listeners and readers are quite keen on following. um, They released a statement yesterday saying that they were going to be paying less for the company they're buying from a German pharmaceutical company called Boehringer Ingelheim. um, Which, on the face of it, sounds quite good. They're paying less, that's great. But the reason they're paying less is because the company they're buying is doing worth than they thought it was which obviously is not very good at all and if you look at the um, market statements yesterday they this was released um, as per usual per market statements about seven or eight a.m i think and a couple of hours after that um, a call with analysts and the press was announced so there must have been a bit of interest from (laughs) investors because the share price fell about 14 percent in early trading the call must have worked because by the end of the day they were down about two or three percent i think at at the market close so they came back a bit but yeah not ideal you've you've just like just in the summer, basically, they said that the acquisition would be earnings accretive in 2016 and definitely beyond. And now they're saying it might be earnings accretive in like 2018. Mm. So not a great acquisition in the short term. And the, the the management's obviously confident about the long term.
0: Well, let's turn to the feature now. One of the two features we have in the issue this week, Theron has written it, and it's about looking at fast-growing smaller companies and some of the pitfalls of uh, when it comes to investing in them uh, and some of the things you should look out for as a private investor. Theron, why did, you, why did this idea occur to you? Or where did this come from in terms of a topic that you thought would be worth looking at?
3: Well, every day I, I see various companies promising the sky to investors and it's always challenging to, to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff and decide which ones are actually going to fulfill their ambitions and provide a return to investors and which ones are going to go bust.
0: Yeah. One of the things you talk about here are, is that rapid growth has its risks and its costs, you know, as well as its rewards. What are you trying to say there?
3: Yeah, Well, if you're, you're a fast-growing company, you're the, the first mover in your industry, there are clear advantages. Maybe you'll be able to get great deals with suppliers, benefit from economies of scale as you scale up. But on the other hand, if you grow too quickly, you risk losing your company culture, losing that je ne sais quoi that made you so special. And your costs could get out of control and management might get a bit arrogant about how well they're doing. So you can sort of lose sight of what you're supposed to do.
0: So you shouldn't get too tied up in looking at top line growth because it won't always filter down.
3: Yeah, definitely. So in the US, it's all about top line growth. But the English take a more conservative approach. They want to see that growth flowing down into profits sooner rather than later. And I, I cite quite a few studies, including The Innovator's Dilemma, this, this landmark book, which uh, basically say that profits need to come sooner rather than later, or they may never appear. So that's definitely something investors need to focus on is not just the promise of profitability, but cold hard evidence that it's going to come
0: well let's talk about some of the some of the tips you give because you've you've kind of given clues for the readers to recognize potential among uh, small caps. The first thing is to look at a company's well one of the first ones is to look at a company's cash burn. Why is that important? And what does that mean?
3: Well, often the most successful uh, growth companies are able to fund their growth through their own cash generation. If you're just getting tons and tons of money externally and just blowing through it, that's pr- often unsustainable and also it, if you can be more cautious and careful with how you spend your own money, that, that speaks well to what kind of business you're running as well.
0: And another thing that you've talked about, which I think often gets overlooked, is management, which obviously is crucially important, uh, but harder to quantify. What what are you are looking at when you're looking at a kind of growth company's management?
3: Well, it's a little bit like recruitment. You're looking at their CV, how, where they've worked, have they ever taken a business from nothing to huge success? That makes it more likely they can do it again, hopefully. And... Uh, where have they worked before is it a high profile blue chip company or is it uh, uh, basically a nobody Mm -hmm. so it's very important to have uh, have credibility
0: and also one of the other things you talk about here is the dangerous situation of having just a few big clients and we know kind of case studies of where that's where that's happened and that's dragged on a company is that something you'd kind of warn against or, or can it be okay you know do you just do you just have to look at the nature of the relationship and how strong you think it is
3: well, I think we've seen that ju- even recently with whenever there's concern about Apple, about a dozen companies struggle afterwards because they're all so interlinked and dependent on this huge company. So, of course, it's, it's valuable to have a diversified customer base, but they always deserve credit if they can get a big company like Visa or comcast to to buy from them that that is validation but obviously the more the better
0: yeah and there are other clues in there and tips so do have a look at the feature i just want to ask you about quite an interesting part of it where you look at amazon and prediction that was made back in 2000 about the size of amazon so this is one of the big things that investors tried to do with these growth companies to work out just how big they can get just how profitable they can be so tell us about this A prediction that was made and how close was it to reality
3: well, a, a few McKinsey management consultants 16 years ago looked at Amazon and they tried to imagine what it would look like in, in a decade's time or 15 years' time. Mm-hmm. And they went about it looking at the company's cash generation at the industry it operates in, at its business model, is online retail better than traditional retail? All these various factors. And then they mocked up four models of what Amazon could look like in 10 to 15 years. From the mo- most bullish to most bearish. And then they averaged that out to get a good sense of what it could look like. And how
0: and close were they?
3: They were pretty close. So they hugely overestimated the company's um, profits and they thought it'd make more sales than it did in real life, but they were very close in terms of its amount of customers. They predicted it would have 120 million and it had 130 million.
0: That's, that's pretty impressive. Okay, well, put us out of our misery. In terms of uh, picks for the reader, can you give us any, maybe just a couple of the companies that you've looked at that you think could tick the boxes in terms of uh, a growth, uh, growth stock that will last?
3: Um, well, we picked a handful. One of the one of my favorites is Earthport. So, this CEO is used to be the head of Goldman Sachs Technology Division. And one day, this company came across his desk, and he thought, "This is something special. It's going to disrupt um, small cross-border payments." And he he quit his job and went to do that. And he also is the head of a, a venture capital fund. So he works with these kinds of companies all the time. So they've definitely got credible management there. They've got a huge addressable market. The whole um small volume payments industry and they they've shot like a few high profile clients as well and they're gaining plenty of traction around the world
0: another one and um, finally if we just talk about gw pharmaceuticals that's an interesting one because it's not had, had the easiest time and it has a lot of research and development costs which is typical of a company uh, such as that and um, so tell us a little bit about why you picked that company
3: Yeah, well, um, it was partly because we've tipped it in the past. And because it's got, again, got a huge addressable market, which is a key thing. So it's going through several trials that are showing that it's, it's cannabis based drugs can treat everything from epilepsy to diabetes to cancer. So even if one of those comes true... And there's plenty of evidence that its drugs will be approved and it's already got some out there that there's huge potential there and huge possibility.
0: I mean, you can't get away from the fact you're always going to be taking a punt with these kind of companies about, you know, that they will make the kind of promised step forward. Uh, But yeah, there's very interesting analysis of the kind of pitfalls that commonly get in the way of investors. All right. Well, there's plenty else in the magazine this week. If you're worried about a recession, then Chris Dello has a great piece about preparing your portfolio. Bear Ball again on Brexit and looking at the Bank of England building up foreign currency reserves. So there's plenty in there there's also a very interesting cover feature which is also by chris dillow about investor biases and why they're not always a bad thing so he looks at uh, his own biases and his own thoughts such as selling in may and buying on halloween and how that can help and also looking at how small growth stocks and new floats can have over exuberant investors involved in them so he talks about some of his own biases and how he thinks that they can actually be useful for investors so that's it It's in All Good News Agents, £4.70. See you next week.
3: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more.